Well, we are in week two of Roadmap. We are taking a look at the book of Galatians. And Paul, I, I said this last week, but Paul is... Uh, he is seemingly a little bit agitated. Uh, this is, has a different tone to it than his other letters. Paul is writing to the church because the, uh, this region of churches actually has been kind of, I, I would say, in, in, invaded by or infested with uh, what they call Judaizers. And this is a group of people who they call themselves Christians, but they still hold on to a lot of other cultural norm, norms. And just to, to, to remind you that in the Jewish society, whether or not you considered yourself to be like a good upstanding or right-standing Jew, there was still a, a, a way that you viewed the world and lived your life, and that was built off of the law that we find in the Old Testament. And honestly, this is still very uh, true to today. Uh, we uh, have friends who are, uh, they, do, they do a work in Israel, and you will find uh, Jews today in Israel who would call themselves atheists in their belief system, but they also uh, fundamentally live by many of the laws through the Old Testament because it has become a part of their culture, a part of their society, and they would look down on somebody who did not act out or live by those rules and regulations. This is what's kind of in invading this area and Paul has been preaching a gospel and there is another gospel coming in behind him and that gospel says that what what you have to do is not just believe in Jesus but you've got to do this 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 and this and so Paul is a little bit agitated now uh, the way that I'm uh, wanting to do this is I'm wanting to tie this into what's happening in our culture so uh, I, I would say that being loyal to something is good but we have to remember that we naturally have a bias to only accept what we already believe. This just comes naturally to us. So we have to, we have to fight against that bias. If we are going to claim Christianity is true and the Bible is true, then we must always be advocates for truth, not just when it's convenient, right? Not just when it's, when it's our, our way that's winning or our ideas that are popular. We have to be ready to be advocates for the truth at all times. So on February 9th, RZIM uh, released an unedited report from a completely independent investigation into allegations made against its founder, Ravi Zacharias. You may not be familiar with Ravi. Uh, Ravi was an apologist for a number of years who started Ravi Zacharias International uh, Ministries. And just this last week, there was a report that was released. And you may be aware that Ravi's ministry has been one that has impacted many lives. I have often quoted him and found myself encouraged by the way he unpacked scripture. When he died in 2020 from cancer, it was sudden and a shock to many. The released report totals 13 pages and outlines detailed confirmation of accusations made against his character. The investigation determined he was guilty of the physical, emotional, sexual, and spiritual abuse of many women these included unwanted touching, sexting, and even rape. This report has been made public, and there is no shortage of people from mainstream media to social media influences and even Muslims and atheists who are jumping in to give their thoughts. Do I believe it? Yes, I do believe the report. Why? Paul writes to the church in Corinth, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
And there are many more than three witnesses who have come forward. Today, I am heartbroken for the victims and their families. In the past 12 months, we have seen the sins of sexual immorality exposed in the lives of several major Christian leaders. And this is an issue, and it is a reality that I would argue God is bringing to the forefront for the church to address, right? It's really easy to address what's happening outside of the church and to point our fingers or say, this is ungodly or this is not okay. But when things are happening inside of the church, we cannot be guilty of just standing by and ignoring these things. When we allow culture to shape and influence our lives, we lose our way. This is why the scripture comes back to the topic of sexual sin over and over, because there is always a victim, someone, even if only a tiny, at a tiny emotional level, is getting hurt. It is important for the church to get this. When we join organizations and movements who advocate for sexual immorality on any level, we are adding people created by God to the list of victims, Right? I talk about sexual immorality all the time in here on Sundays, and I have people say, why do we talk about it so much? Well, it's really difficult to read much more than about 20 minutes of scripture and not have it come back to some conversation around sexual immorality. So it's something that seems to be important to God, and it is unfortunately something that is really difficult to get the church to see as something that's important to them. So to justify sexual immorality, one must either discount the word of God or adopt a works-based view of salvation. What do I mean by that? The idea that, yeah, I believe in God and I'm a pretty good person. And so therefore, you know, I think I'll be good. That's exactly the scenario that the region of Galatians, of the church, of the book, that the letter to Galatians that he wrote was dealing with. It's the exact same thing the region was going through. They were either discounting the word and saying that doesn't apply to us, or they were saying, yeah, I mean, I do think God believes that, but I'm a mostly good person, right? I do most of the laws. I do most of the good things, so God will be okay with it. And remember last week in Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul wrote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Today, what I want to do as we move forward is talk to you about how Paul addresses this by getting personal. Paul's going to talk about who he is, where he has come from, and why where you have come from matters to the gospel. So we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So he talks about the fact that there is really only one gospel. So if you're hearing anything else that calls itself gospel, it's not of God. And then he comes in on the other side of that and he says, in fact, I'll have you know this, that the gospel I preached is not one that man put together, right? This is actually something that was given by God. And so salvation by faith is not an idea that man could even come up with. When you look at the religions of the world, right, there are so many characteristics that they have in common, so many traits that they have in common when it comes to how you are redeemed and saved. And Christianity sets itself completely to a, a, a completely apart from the rest of them because they all talk about you doing mostly good and then you'll be judged based on all those behaviors 
And Christianity says that there is an initial salvation that takes place, an initial redemption, and that is simply by believing that Jesus died for you. It is a faith that Jesus was the Son of God. It is a, it is a salvation by faith. Remember in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And I'll remind you of this, that this word accursed, right, in the Greek had these two different ways, right? They would say anathema or anathema. And if they said anathema, they were referencing uh, being uh, uh, devoted to God. And if they said anathema, they were talking about being devoted to the curse of God. And so Paul has laid this out. He says that if you are engaged in a different gospel, you have made a devotion to what God has cursed. And, and so there's just, there's a real, there's a Paul's trying to create some weight here to, to help us navigate how important it is to get the gospel presentation right, to get it correct. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So man does not write a story in which the hero is the servant, and Paul comes out with the story of the gospel in which the hero Jesus comes to serve humanity, to lay down his life. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So what does Paul say? Paul says that he was a zealot, right? And he's not saying this like, man, I was really fired up for Jesus, right? He's, he's telling them that I was a zealot in the sense that I was a zealot for that which stood against the gospel, and, and, and the ultimate goal of that movement of zealots was not to just say, hey, like, you know, keep your Jesus thing to yourself. I don't want to hear it here, right? Or, hey, go, go take it somewhere else and y'all have a conversation outside. It was quite literally to shut down Christians. They were willing to kill them. They were willing to imprison them. And this was, among some, culturally acceptable. This last week, a comedian said this, the events of January 6th were a faith-based initiative and Trumpism is a Christian nationalist movement that believes Trump was literally sent from heaven to save them. There's a lot of talk now in liberal quarters about how Republicans should tell their base who still believe the election was rigged that they need to grow up and move on and stop asking the rest of us to respect their mass delusion. The inconvenient truth here is that if you accord religious faith the kind of exalted respect we do here in America, you've already lost the argument that mass delusion is bad. So this comedian said that, that, that we, you might look at what happened on January 6th and you might think, man, this was the, the actions of some delusional people. But the truth is that if you won't look at Christians everywhere and see them as delusional and begin to call them delusioned, then you don't really have an argument anyway. 
He goes on and says, when you are a QAnon fanatic, you are also a fundamentalist Christian. They just go together like Chardonnay and Valium. Now, let me just throw a couple of things out here for you real quick, okay? Um, I, I didn't know what QAnon was until a couple of months ago, and I still don't know much about it. So if, if you are a QAnon rabbit hole person, I, I, I don't know what to say to you. I just, because I, I don't know. But, but let, me, let me just tell you that, that his comparison actually works really, really well. Because you should not be drinking Chardonnay and taking Valium at the same time. That is not something that's going to bode well for you, right? Now, I think that for him, he thought, like, this is how you do it, right? But I would say that as a Christian, right, and as a respecter of science, that's a great way to make a tremendous mess out of your life, potentially even end it. The reason I bring it up is that these are the types of movements that want to, and listen, it's just a reality and it's not something that's new, but there are movements that want to set Christians, right, and the faith in Christianity out into the main public square to have it completely shut off, shut down, and be finished. Now, can I, can I tell you something? I am not sharing this to get to take on the persecuted uh, uh persona, right? Like, I, I don't need to lay down here and have everybody come and tell me how it's going to be okay. I don't feel persecuted, right? We're going to get to it in a moment. At the end of the day, right, Jesus wins, right? I've got this. Like, I'm not worried about that aspect of it. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that he was on the side of shutting down Christianity. There is a culture that wants to shut down the faith. They want to villainize it. There's even conversations right now that have been taking place for several years. They've regurgitated in the last couple of weeks that maybe Christianity should be labeled a domestic terrorist group. Right? That's, that's insanity, right, in our minds. But can I tell you something? There's an enemy that is insane, and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm fully aware of the fact that I'm engaging with an insane enemy when I am a person that accepts Jesus to be Lord of my life. Paul lays this out pretty well. Actually, Luke does a recording of it in Acts chapters 8 and 9 and how Paul used his influence to come against Christians. Paul was a man of tremendous influence. He had been educated by the best. He had been raised up by the elite. And he was in a position to, to actually, he had a trajectory in life for incredible success. And so Paul is having this conversation right now when he's talking about the gospel. He says, let me tell you, I am somebody, right, who comes from a position where I persecuted people who believed this. And what is he telling us? What is it that Paul is trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate that Paul has a past. And this is essential to the gospel. Because the gospel creates a, 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 a clearly defined moment in our lives where we recognize that there was a time when we were against Jesus and there is a time now where we are committed to Jesus. And everyone who comes to the faith has that experience because it is by faith that you say, I wasn't good enough. I couldn't do this on my own. I couldn't navigate this. I couldn't make it happen. I needed Jesus. And that's what Paul is communicating. Do you have a past? 
I mean, do you really have a past? Do you have a past where you can clearly recognize that at this time in my life, I was not for Jesus? And do you miss your past? Do you find yourself sitting here sometimes longing to go back to those old ways? He goes on in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, set him apart before he was born. So this is something that in the gospel we recognize, right? Like our faith is that Jesus wanted me before I was born. Jesus laid claim to me before I was born. the, The father, when he was creating everything, right? He wanted me to be his was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with, uh, with anyone. So you'll see this little E here. If you're looking in your text, there's probably a little, little letter there, right? Uh, and this is a footnote for you. And I think it's a good one because it's saying that in the Greek, this word is actually in. So if you go back and look at this, it says that it was pleased to reveal his son in me. So in the Greek, he doesn't say that it was like, well, Jesus was over there and, and, and he was brought and presented like, oh, hi, good to meet you. Glad that you're here. But what happened was he realized that Jesus was already doing a work and a battle to fight for him. And it was an internal one. So when he found Jesus, right, he discovered something that was already happening presently inside of him. Let's go back to Acts chapter 26 real quick. Now, in 8 and 9, Luke is telling Paul's story, but there are uh, two more times, I believe it's Acts 22, and then here in Acts 26, where Paul actually tells the story himself, okay? And I want to just take a quick look at this. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He's on his way there to be a part of building the culture that will shut the faith down. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Couple of quick things right here. It says Saul, right? And we're talking about Paul in this text. When Saul has this life transforming moment, right? We know that historically, Throughout the scripture, there were moments where people entered into covenant with God and God would change their name, right? So Saul changes his own name to Paul. We don't have anything in the text that says that God did it, right? But the reason that he would have done it is because he understood there was covenant taking place right here and he wanted it to be marked. He wanted people to know, I'm in a covenant. I want people to know that there is something that is different about me. Now, he uses this word, this language here, right? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This is what Jesus is saying to him. And, and I, I had to look this up 
But what this means is if you think in terms of like a, uh, an ox, right? And the ox is, is, is working, you're working the field with the ox and the ox gets lazy, right? And the ox doesn't want to do what you have purposed it to do. And what happens is, is that they would go up and that they would strike it with a spur of some sort, okay, to get it moving. But the ox, unlike a lot of other uh, animals, had this reflex to where right when they got hit, they would kick back. And so they would actually kick faster than the person who was trying to prod them on could pull the prod backwards. And so they would self-inflict themselves a second time. And so Jesus is saying, like, he says, you're kicking against the goats, right? I'm trying to prod you. And instead of you getting the, oh yeah, like I need to do something. Like I need to be, I need, this is Jesus at work. You just keep kicking back and hurting yourself more. And so so Paul's painting a picture about how resistant he was. And that Jesus was fully aware of this. So he has a past, it's a dark past. It's 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 an evil part, right? of his life, and he was resistant to bringing change. Let's go back to Galatians 1, verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he says that when this happened, I really didn't seek anyone's counsel. I just kind of went on my way. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So he says, I had a life-transforming experience. About three years passed. And I finally went to go and meet with somebody. I met with Cephas. This is Peter, right? And while he's there, he spends a little bit of time with Peter. He meets James, but he doesn't encounter anybody else. And this is important for what he's going to be laying out in just a moment. And he wants to make sure you understand that he's telling the truth. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So these are people who don't know who he is. They just know the rumor that here's a guy who was persecuting these Christians and now he's out here trying to convert people to Christianity, and it's, it's really a conundrum to people in the outlying areas. It is a position of fear in the, in the areas around Jerusalem. And they glorified God because of me. What does he say? He says, I was going in and sharing with them the good news, and their, their lives were being transformed, and because I was being faithful, they were bringing glory to God. And so the gospel creates a defined moment between your past and your future. He says, I know when this happened. I know when I came to faith in Christ and it was from there that all these other things happened. It was not, I did all this work and then I met Jesus. It was, I met Jesus, I was saved. And in that transformation, 
right? There was fruit. I began doing what? I began going into some of the hard-to-reach places and spaces to share the gospel, and God was being glorified because I was actively faithful. But I was already transformed. And that defined moment is a faith awakening, not a task completion, And so in your life, if you're one of these people that's struggling with, am I saved? Am I not saved, right? You're you're coming to that place either because you don't know if you believe in Jesus or because you don't know if you're good enough. And that secondary one right there is a deception. It's a deception that the enemy has used, that this world has used among people of the faith to make people think, well, I've just got to be good enough. No, no, no. What happens is when we believe in Jesus and that faith moment happens, there is an old life and there is a new life. This is why the language is there, right? Old and new, the old man, the new man, because there is a difference. You look different. There will be fruit in your life. You will not want to sin. You will not be okay with sin. Notice I'm not saying you won't sin because you'll make mistakes We'll get to it in just a moment. In chapter two, Peter actually ends up making a mistake, right? Ends up sinning. That, that, is, that is part of what happens. You just cannot justify it and be like, well, it's gonna be okay. You've got to be ready to receive rebuke. You've got to be uh, ready to receive a, a loving correction so that you can keep moving forward and fulfilling the purpose God has for your life. Galatians chapter two, verse one. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I just point this out, 14 years. Three years after he has the encounter with Jesus, he begins doing some ministry. He goes to Jerusalem, he meets with Peter. And 14 years later is when the real ministry begins. The things that you and I talk about, the things that, the stories that that we are engrossed in and engaged in was 14 years later. And so let me say this, whenever you are young in the faith, one of those passages that that can kind of get ingrained in you is that, that idea to let no one despise you for your youth, right? Paul tells Timothy this, right? And it is true. No one should despise you for your youth. If you are in love with Jesus and you are serving Jesus and you are a young person, don't let anybody put you down for that. But don't also understand that you don't need to make the mistake to mistaken youth for wisdom. that there are people who have lived more life. They have more experience and more to offer, and it is actually healthy for you to go as a young person and connect with somebody and say, hey, how do I do this part of my life better? Now, this is not popular in our culture. It was not popular in this culture. And so Paul, in sharing the gospel, is laying out this idea that it is good for us to be engaged in community and to take our time. Notice he also points out here uh, that Barnabas and Titus are with him. Paul does this on purpose, right? It's not that he's name dropping. It's because he wants them to understand that Discipleship brings others with you. And that as, as children of God, people who come to know Jesus, like, like 
our influence on people should be the influence that's kingdom and eternal, not an influence that is like, just, oh, I want them to like me. Like if I'm a, if I'm a believer, then I should be bringing people around and along with me because I want to get them to a place where they really know Jesus and are serving him, not to where they feel comfortable just coming over to my house and hanging out or because today was a bad day, they just needed somebody to talk to. Get them to the place where they are engaged in ministry. And this is something, I'll be honest, that a lot of times we can lack in. We can, we can get to the place where we're like, I, I just, I don't have time. Or I, they get on my nerves. Or I just don't want them in my house. But the reason that the New Testament church was unstoppable against the Roman Empire was because they did what no one in the Roman Empire would do, and that was that they helped people. They fed the hungry. They gave a place for those who smelled really bad to sleep. They took care of people. They invested in people. And when Caesar would write out to the governors and say, hey, listen, I need you to start doing what the Christians are doing because they're getting, they're, they're building momentum. The governors wrote back and said, we can't do that. We can't have those people in our homes. We can't do life around them. So Paul is very subtly laying out a, a roadmap for how we engage and embrace the gospel. Verse two, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul says, three years after I was saved, I went to Jerusalem. I went out and for 14 years, I began doing ministry. And he says, I was preaching, right? A gospel to the Gentiles. And then there became this conflict where people in the outlying area started going, well, there's a little bit more to it. You know, you've got to be given a little bit more money. You've got to be dressing a little bit this way. You really need to be acting like this. And God really cares if you are committed to this activity and that activity. And Paul's going, hold on, no, 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 no. That is, that is not the gospel that was given. That is not the gospel that I preached. And notice what he does. He says, he says that I, I came to those of influence, he went and submitted to spiritual authority. Now, I don't do a great job at talking about spiritual authority and teaching, and I'm gonna tell you why, because I, the dirtiest joke I have ever heard in my life was riding down the road with a man who was my pastor. The dirtiest joke I've ever heard, hands down. And if I had the maturity to then that I have today, I would have resigned on the spot. I would have said, hold on, I, I'm not going to be a part of this. But I did not know what to do as a young person in ministry when this guy was telling me this to try to get a laugh out of me. <coughs> that same pastor would get up on the platform on Sunday and, and use language like, you don't question the man of God. You don't go and, and, and you do what the pastor tells you to do. And I thought to myself, like, you're just this big hypocrite. 
in your office, in your life. And it's one of the things that has driven me to be the man that I am. And, and I would hope that, that the argument would be made by anybody who knows me that I'm the same guy up here that I am if I'm sitting at the table having dinner with, with you or playing a board game or uh, uh, whatever other act, shooting guns with Jeff, right? Oh, I don't shoot guns in here, sorry. Uh, but if I was out doing something, right? that you would go, oh, that's the same. He's the same, right? That's a, that's a, that's a passion of mine because I've seen it not that way. But it's a, it's a, it is a, a little bit of a disservice for me not to talk about it because the truth is that you need spiritual authority in your life. And we have a culture right now that doesn't acknowledge spiritual authority just like Paul did then. And so you know what Paul says? Paul says, let me tell you about this whole thing. There's this big mess that's going on. And what did I do I went and sought spiritual authority. Why is he saying that? He says, he's saying that because he wants you to understand that you should have a past, a defining moment to where it was, I was against him, now I'm for him. And then there should be this consistency in your life that when all of a sudden things are questioned, you're willing to be submitted to some spiritual authority in your life. My spiritual authority in my life is my father-in-law. He is my pastor. He was my pastor when I was uh, through high school. Uh, I am blessed that I was able to marry his daughter, but I'll tell you today, and he would tell you the same, that anytime I've got a question and I'm struggling and I'm not really sure how to look at something, I call him up and our elders have him as an overseer to where they can call him up. Because I want spiritual authority in my life. I want you to have spiritual authority in your life. And Paul is making the argument here hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that came out and started these works, but I want you to know that rather than just going, well, I'm the man and I'm telling you this is how it is, I went to, the, to Jerusalem and I met with the apostles and I was laying out a, a, a series of questions for them to speak into my life. And so this is what he discovers. The same gospel is being preached to the Gentiles that is being preached to the Jews. This is what he wanted to make sure was okay right? He wanted to make sure that it was good. He goes, I know this is what you guys are preaching. Is it okay that I'm out here preaching the same thing to the Gentiles? Because there are some who are coming behind me and saying that it's not. Watch here in verse three. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why does that matter? We talked about this last week. Paul had been ministering and a group of Judaizers came behind him after he had left and they said, look, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but now you've got to get, I mean, now you've got to get uh, circumcised. That's got to be what happens. And, and this got word to Paul and Paul said, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's, the, that's the old law. You don't have to be circumcised. It's faith alone. And so an argument broke out. And so what did they do? They went to Jerusalem. They met with the apostles and it was decided, right? James spoke up and said, yeah, they don't have to be circumcised, but they do need to be committed to living lives that are not given over to idolatry, the worship of false gods, sexual immorality. So there are things that, are, that we would look at as lifestyle that are closed-handed. You just can't, you, as a believer, you can't be engaged in these things, but there are these other things that are open-handed. So Paul, coming back into this argument, dealing with these Judaizers again, these people that want to blend all of the faith into the culture around them, he, he's making a gentle jab Maybe not so gentle. I told you he's getting a little feisty here. He says, we went there and they didn't make Titus get circumcised. 
and this is not the first time that he's engaged with them, yet, verse four, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So he comes in to meet with the apostles and he says that even there in Jerusalem among the apostles, there are now spies. There are now those that have infiltrated the leadership in Jerusalem. And so there were quite literally people who had determined their view of the faith without spiritual authority. These were people who came in, they had their own view of what faith looked like, and they themselves were not committed to any spiritual authority because if they were, if they'd come in and sat down with the apostles, the apostles would have told them the same thing that they told Paul, but they don't do that. Instead, they walk around the apostles secretly having their own point of view and telling people what their point of view is. And Paul comes in and he's a little bit shocked by this. This happens though. This happens where, where, where leadership can, can, can be somewhat, and I hate to use the word infiltrated, but you can have people who come onto a leadership team that are not committed to the vision of the house and they're not committed to, to, to the beliefs, right, that are, that are laid out here and the way that the, the church is interpreting scripture. They have their own point of view and so they're happy to sit down and grab a cup of coffee and tell you how they view scripture is differently. And Paul says that, Quite literally, it was like they were spies. And what was their purpose? Their purpose was to enslave. They had no intention to themselves submit to spiritual authority. They saw their role to be the ones who guided spiritual authority. And this is a, this is a word of caution for me. This is a conversation that we've, me and the elders have been having, and it's is that we have to do a really good job at making the vision clear in the house, right? And, and I'm, you guys know that I, I'll tell you all the time how imperfect I am, right? So if you do hang out with me enough, you'll notice, yeah, that Jim's not perfect. Um, I don't have a choir robe that I float through my house with singing old uh, hymns all the time, right, uh, at, at the house. Uh, I, I, I'm somewhat a normal guy, I think, and I'm not perfect, but sometimes people can get close to you and they don't have any intention of being a part of the vision. They don't have any intention of being submitted to spiritual authority. And Paul is saying, let me tell you something. I get it. There are people in Jerusalem that you may have spoken with who are telling you the things you want to be true are true. But I'm not submitted to them because they're not the spiritual authority. They're just there in the peripheral helping. I went straight to the source, to the apostles, the ones that were left to be the spiritual authority. And what does it say? It says that they might bring us into slavery. Now, I want to point this out. Do you think that it was the intention of such people to enslave their peers? No. Paul wasn't saying that they walked into the room with a slave master's outfit on going, I'm here to take you in. No, 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 no. They, they, were, they would have been completely blind to this because they would have been bought in to their own ideology. And let me tell you, you can get bought into your own belief system and if you will not allow anyone else to speak into your life, you'll find yourself just like these individuals. 
So Paul says that the intent was to enslave. Why? Because it would have kept us from getting to the true gospel. And this is the reality, is that the, the enslaving, that was the fruit that those people bear. What does it do? It tears others down. Verse five, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. When we resist those who are not submitted to spiritual authority and or the one gospel, we benefit and protect others. When we have a clear view of the gospel and we are resistant to those people who are rebels out there doing their own thing, they're not submitted to the word, they're not submitted to spiritual authority, when we will stand against that, right, we actually help other people is what Paul says. Verse six, and from those who seemed to be influential, what they were what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. This word added nothing to me. He means that when I identified that this person walked in rebellion, I did not use this idea of, well, you know, take the meat and spit out the bones. He said, this, the, this group of people were out of line and I did not allow them to have influence in my life. This is not the type of language, can I tell you, that we typically use. We typically use the language, well, we take the good and kind of get over the bad. But when it comes to the gospel, Paul says, if you can't get the gospel right, you don't get to speak into my life. If you can't get the gospel right, I don't need to be reading your self-help books, listening to your podcast, gleaning what I can off of you. Paul says, they get to add nothing to me. When I say he was feisty, I'm telling you, he is trying to get the idea across to people that the gospel is that important. It's a deal breaker. You call yourself a follower of Christ, but if you don't have the gospel right, you do not get to speak into my life. And the reality is not everyone should be allowed to speak into your life. This is why we have qualifications for eldership in scripture, what it looks like to be a pastor, right? These are not just so that internally there's like this measuring stick for how, you know, what type of person they are. It's, it's written out there for everybody so that, so that what? So that you can look and go, hold on, this person doesn't bear the fruit that they're supposed to be bearing so that you can make decisions. And sometimes, let's be honest, people can do a really good job at hiding their junk. And so what do we do? Do we get to the other side of a 13-page report and go, well, I guess it's all a sham? No. We acknowledge that as soon as we find out that there is sin and especially unrepentant sin, some decisions need to be made. And they may not be comfortable and they may not be the ones that we want to make, but Paul says, I'm not letting these people add anything to me. 
verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his uh, apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He says, so they, it became evident that all the work Peter was doing there in Jerusalem to those who were practicing Jews and converting to Christianity, that the exact same anointing was on uh, Paul as he was in the outlying areas with the Gentiles, and this was becoming apparent. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So he comes back in 17 years after that encounter, and he says, let me tell you what I've been doing. I've been taking the thing that you've been preaching, and I've been preaching it to the Gentiles, and they sat there, and, and the spiritual authority that Paul was ready to be submitted to said, this is, this is good. We see God in it, and we bless it. So Paul's making the argument to them. He says, let me tell you, I went, I went to submit to spiritual authority and there were some people who were, who were crazy around when I got up there. I was able to identify that because they weren't teaching the right gospel, but the pillars, the ones who were the leaders, they sat down and they blessed what's happening. What, what I have, they have blessed me and the ministry that I have started. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel that I preached is the only gospel. There isn't another one. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I just want to make a point here. So this is not a, a disconnected statement when we're talking about the poor. A lot of times uh, this will be quoted by uh, people saying, you know, like the gospel is important, but we've also got to be focused on the poor. So this, this statement that's laid out here in the Greek is a fluid thought talking about Christians. And so what, what scholars make the argument is, is they're not talking about just poor people, right? I mean, we know that we should help those who are in need. Jesus makes that very clear. But in this case, they're talking about Christians in poverty. And there was three primary reasons why Christians were experiencing incredible poverty during this time. The first was they had made great sacrifice. A lot of Christians were willing to be in poverty. They'd, they were willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to literally give it all up and live in poverty to help fund getting the gospel out. I would like to make an argument for you today that the fruit of that sacrifice by those people is evident, hopefully, in the lives of your family and the conversations that you have because Christianity became an unstoppable force around the world. The second is they were persecuted. The Christians were not it, was not, a, it was not an acceptable lifestyle. Culture did not want it. Culture wanted to come against it. And then the third uh, was the effects of the famine that the land was encountering during this time. And so even those that gave up and those that were in persecution, you still had a lack of resources to even get access to. And so he says, as you're sharing the gospel, be aware of those believers who are in need. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So what does he say? He says, I go in, I want you to understand that I'm gonna be submitted to spiritual authority, but I also need you to understand something that, that does not put spiritual authority above reproach. You don't go and just not 
have any voice in it, right? And he says that when Peter came to Antioch, I went and I got in his face. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so there was this Pharisaic Pharisaic tradition that forbade Jews from eating next to the unclean Gentiles. And Paul says that that Peter comes in, there's a work that's been done, and he comes into this area where there are new believers, and he's really excited, and he's, he's eating with them, and he's getting to know them. And then a group of Jews come into town, and he immediately begins to distance himself, and he begins to adhere to the law. And Paul says... Let's talk about consistency for just a moment. And he gets in Peter's face and he says, you do not get to play the game of doing what's comfortable in the moment. If you're going to look at these people and tell them that they do not have to be bound to the law, then do not yourself exercise the gospel that way. And so Paul is showing his determination, right? The gospel makes the difference. There's one gospel, right? I've got the blessing of spiritual authority, but even spiritual authority can step out of line. They can sin. And instead of being like, I'm out of here, man. I'm not having anything to do with this, right? Paul didn't dip out. He didn't bounce. No, what he did was he came and got into Peter's face and a resolution was made, right? So this was an issue that had already been settled. And so Paul had the grounds to go. And he didn't just turn around and walk away. And let me tell you something else. Peter didn't temporarily repent. This was a transformation moment in Peter's life. And the gospels, the scripture shows that to us. When I mean temporary repent, and this is something that, that people can be guilty of, is they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I won't do that. We do that right when we're kids to our parents. Oh, mom, I'm sorry, right? We have this thing in the house. What does I'm sorry mean? I won't do it again, right? And why are you apologizing for the same thing over and over, right? Because you keep, you're just temporarily apologizing. And Peter doesn't do that. Peter receives it. Now, as as a leader, as a pastor, I want to be that type of pastor. When I'm out of line, I want to be able to have people in my life that'll come in and go, hey, I think you're missing the mark here, that I'll look at what Scripture says, and if I think that the Scripture says, yeah, they're right, and I'm submitted to that authority, I want to be able to repent and continue to walk with my brothers and my sisters. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he acknowledges he has an advantage, He acknowledges he has responsibility and he acknowledges that it came from God. He was born a Jew. And in this this situation, it gave him an advantage. But that advantage wasn't one that just got him the, the best meat when he went to the market. No, 
it was a responsibility now to be the one sharing the gospel. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, this word yet is really important right here. In the Greek, it's two different words, and it's knowing nevertheless, right? Knowing nevertheless. So it's knowing nevertheless, right, that a person is not justified by works. And this word justified right here, uh, or the footnote for this is, or counted righteous. It's used three times in 16 and also in 17. So it says that, that, that nonetheless, we know, right, that a person is not counted righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So it is not a measurement of how good you are. That's the, that's the good news. It is a, a faith decision that you make. And when you make that decision, it is like planting a really healthy seed and there will be fruit in your life. That if you will cling to the faith, all of these things, right? All of these works, they just become an overflow of who you are. The law was never, unlike faith, instrumental to justification. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were, were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He asked this question because it's rhetorical. He knows the answer, and he's hoping that at this point, you know the answer. Paul says that if being a good person was something to fall back on, then Jesus would be a servant of sin. This is, what, this is how far he's willing to take this, right? He's willing to take it this far, that if being a good person is enough, then Jesus came as a servant of sin. that would be ridiculous because we are not we are saved by faith we do not teach a gospel that by any means other than faith in Jesus a person can be saved for if I rebuild what I tore down I prove myself to be a transgressor my old life I was counting on I'm a pretty good person my faith in Jesus helps me understand I'm not a good person So when you watch these videos, right, where the, the uh, ministers are out and they're interviewing people and they're like, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And, oh, yeah, I'm a good person. God will be good. I'm good. I, I obey most of the laws, right? That has nothing to do with your salvation. And Paul wants to make clear this fact. I am also not saved by my compassion for others. You can be as compassionate and desperate to help everyone around you, that won't save you. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons? Did I, did I do a lot of really awesome things? And, and he'll say, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. Am I saying don't be compassionate? No. I'm saying that compassion it should be not the justification for your faith, but the overflow of your faith. 
by placing a priority to anything over that which Christ established makes him a champion of my sin. If I think that any other thing I do is going to make God happy enough to receive me, then I position Jesus to be a champion of my sin on the sideline cheering me on. And that is just simply not the case. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The prophetic nature of the law pointed people to Christ. That's why it was given, so that people would be pointed to Jesus. And I'm wrapping up here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a, a lot of people quote this Bible verse, right? Right? This is one of those that's like, oh, this is my, my favorite Bible verse type of thing, right? Bringing some context from Galatians 1, from this letter all the way to this moment, right? What he is saying is he is saying, let me tell you, let me get personal with you for a moment, right? I was a lying, thieving, cheating adulterer. I was a good-for-nothing sinner, and I believed that there was a God, and I thought I was a good person, and I was trying to do the best I could to make everybody in my life happy, and then I realized that I was never going to do good enough, and I said, Jesus, take take control. I surrender to you, and what happened is I became crucified with Christ, and now I live with him. And this is why we use that language when we talk about John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they could have life and have it to the fullest. And we use this language. We say, that life to the fullest, it's not, it's not after you die. Because, I mean, that's the mindset. It's like, oh, things will get better after I die, right? When I step into glory. And we have songs about it and everything. But that wasn't what he was saying. He was saying that you would have your best life right here, right now. You see, when you come to know Jesus as Lord of your life, you begin to live eternity right then and there. That's your birth date. That's the birth date. And the story of my past is the story of my death. And I'm gonna tell you, it's probably gonna be something that's very personal, but it can be very powerful. In Revelation, it says that the enemy is defeated by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So the thing that stands between the defeat of the enemy and the enemy's victory is the blood of the lamb being shed, already done, and you having a story. The children of God making their story known. And we don't have to live in fear. We do not have to run and hide. Disappointment from our brothers and sisters is not something that will matter in eternity. It is for the benefit of others. Because why? It cannot have me again. My old life does not get me back. I'm not going back. I'm not going to be that person that I was. I now live as a new person. And he ends the thought here in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Let's stand to our feet. He says, I will not nullify the grace of God by using this language, I'm mostly a good person. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then it was a waste for Jesus to die. And we don't believe that. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice and we received the benefit of that. Listen, as we close out today to go home, I want to, I want to encourage you. Do you have faith that Jesus is your only hope? And, and, and if that is the case and you're like, no, I know when that happened, but you're not bearing fruit, right? Then I want to encourage you to begin to evaluate, like, what are the things in my life that I am also believing in that are compromising this gospel moment, this new life moment? What are the things that are compromising it that keep me from walking in that fullness? And begin to identify the old man is gone. I am a new creation and I can live differently and I can have fullness walking differently. And as long as I don't walk differently, as long as I walk as a hypocrite, there will continue to be comedians and commentators standing by, ready to tell the world, look at them, they're the reason that Christianity needs to be shut down. We've got to be not just bold in the faith, but we've got to live well. Amen? Amen. Listen, as we close, if you want to know Jesus today, uh, we would love to share the gospel with you. Our prayer ministry team is available in the back following service. They will pray with you. Guys, we have Bibles that are available for you. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we just got new ones in. Really excited about that. The host team has those. Uh, uh, We're living right now in a day and age where there is a lot that is being said about democracy and freedom of speech and and these different things. I I bought a hundred pocket constitutions and you are available to grab one completely free today to walk out the door, read it in the founding father's own words, right? And see what your thoughts are uh, after reading it. I think that's a big problem. A lot of us, if we ever have read the constitution for the United States, we did it in school. We're not familiar with it today. Can I tell you the constitution doesn't save us? It doesn't save us, right? But today, right now, If we're submitted to the law of the land, it is the law of the land that protects our freedom to worship, right? It gives us freedom of speech. And so I would encourage you to be familiar with it so that you know what your rights are under this government, right? Because this government is superseded by a heavenly government, all right? If you need prayer, they'll be available with you in the back. I want to pray for you, and then we'll dismiss. Father... We thank you for your mercy and your grace, which is new every day, extended further and further for every life, every soul. Lord, we believe that your word is true. Jesus, our faith is in you. And as new creations, Father, I just, I pray that you would give us opportunities to bear good fruit, to be light in the darkness. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen, amen. We love you guys. As always, go change your world. We will see you next Sunday.